And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very pleased that we can end this week of morning shows, which has already been an interesting lineup, with uh, one of my very favorite guests and most frequent guests to the morning show, Dr. Art Sear. Clawson, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, author of After the Cold War, a columnist whose work appears in newspapers across the country, and who is a regular visitor to the morning show on a monthly basis to offer his thoughtful commentary on a wide array of, of issues. And I'm really glad we uh, once again can have Professor Sear in our studios uh, to have yet another engaging conversation. Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's nice to be popular here. You're very <laughs> gracious. <laughs> Always glad to have you here, and especially when there are lots of interesting things to talk about. Uh, we're, of course, uh, at Carthage, where we teach in kind of the home stretch of this spring semester. How are things feeling for you as we uh, approach the finish line of yet another academic year? Uh, going quite well. Um, we're all back teaching in person. Uh, as our listeners know and should know if they don't. And uh, I'm fortunate in lots of different ways. Um, Responsible for International Political Economy, IPE, it's a difficult major and therefore draws good students. Hmm. Uh, And um, things, I think it reflects the fact that our students, it's a very sociable time in life, of course. They want to be back in person, and things have gone smoother for me uh, especially in, including with our seniors. They have to do a challenging senior thesis. Things overall are smoother for me than I can remember them being even before the pandemic. So I feel very blessed. Very good. Maybe you could just... Uh, the major is increasing in number as well, I right. should note, yes. Very good. And maybe you could just briefly explain what that major is sort of about, I mean, uh, because it's it's a, it's a major that, as far as I know, didn't exist uh, 40 years ago when I was entering college, or if it did, it's not one that I was aware of. I mean, I'm aware of political science, of course, aware of economics, but it sounds like this is a major that is drawing a couple of different worlds together. Well put, and actually your time horizon, I think, is pretty accurate. Hmm. Uh, It all started with the Industrial Revolution and Adam Smith, um, a name that people are generally aware of, who really analyzed this tremendous change that was going on back in the 1700s in Great Britain. And our British friends uh, have kept political economy together. Mm. It's a very durable, very old discipline, actually. Early in the 20th century, in good American fashion, American economists decided, you know, we're really not, we're much more like engineers and scientists, technology, statistics. This is what we do. This is the American way. We're very concrete and practical. Let's get rid of these abstract liberal arts, government and politics people. Uh, that point of view became increasingly influential and became dominant, I think, in the Kennedy and then Johnson administrations in the 60s. Uh, A British scholar by the name of Phillips at the LSE, the School of Economics, put together a uh, statistical analysis, the Phillips curve. Inflation and unemployment go up in inverse relations to one another. Hmm. Walter Heller, a name that's not mentioned any, anymore, back in 61, uh, he was appointed chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Kennedy. Kennedy he came from the University of Minnesota. Uh, he said running the economy is kind of like driving a car. You step on the gas, you step on the brakes, we can use the budget like this. Hmm. 
by the end of the 60s, inflation and unemployment were going up together because we're dealing with human beings, of course, mm. uh, not, uh, not purely uh, computer and totally predictable. Not just numbers. Objects. Yes, exactly. And stagflation was a great challenge during the 70s, not just because uh, people were too overconfident about managing fiscal policy, but human life is constantly surprising us. Mm. We're all aware of the Vietnam War. That point of view was very influential, uh, especially in the Johnson administration. So uh, starting in the 70s, there was a trend for uh, political science and economics to come back together again. Uh, Greg Campbell, very long-term president of our college before my time, uh, sensed this and put together a conference of our economics colleagues, several of whom are still with us, including Yuri Maltsev, and uh, that's where the major came from. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we're reflecting a broader trend in academic education and the vexing challenge always, which I've been recently reminded of, of how we relate a good general liberal arts education to the real world after graduation. Interesting. And so the major uh, is relatively new at Carthage and maybe relatively new to America, but it is an, an academic discipline that's actually been around a long, long time. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. interesting. A, a way of studying things and a way of looking at things, and it, it draws directly from the Industrial Revolution, which has had such a huge impact on all aspects of life and continues to do so, including war and peace, which mm -hmm. we were just discussing off right. the air. So uh, for all the times I've introduced you as a Gloucester Distinguished Professor of Political Economy, it's uh, nothing I understood particularly well in terms of just what was behind those two words. So I'm glad to get some clarification. I suspect our listeners are as well. Um, let's turn our attention to some uh, important matters. And of course, uh, the, the, the matter that uh, has really galvanized uh, the attention of the whole world continues to be the conflict between Russia uh, and Ukraine. You've uh, written about this uh, on a couple of uh, different, uh, in a couple of different recent columns. Uh, including one in which you reiterated a point that uh, I, I remember you making on on more than one previous morning show visit, namely the fact that this this invasion of Russia into Ukraine uh, actually stems from what is uh, kind of a long-standing sense of insecurity for the Russians, uh, and it's really important for us to understand this. Uh, in order to understand, for instance, why this current conflict is underway between uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. Before we talk in more recent terms, maybe you could give us a little more, uh, a, a longer view on uh, where, this, where this sense of insecurity, this, this fear of invasion by others that, that the Russians have long held, uh, where that comes from, what the, what the history of that is. Russia is a very large country. It's a country that's also very vulnerable in terms of its borders, and not just on their western front, but historically they've been very insecure. Um, Napoleon's invasion with this enormous uh, French army in 1812 certainly reinforced that. The Russians were able to, um, to drive the French out ultimately, but the army of 300,000 men was quite extraordinary and unprecedented in modern times. Uh, Moscow was occupied and burned. Barbarossa, the gigantic, almost at the time almost unbelievable, um, 
invasion by the Wehrmacht, uh, Nazi Germany's army in 1941, which took uh, the Soviet ally and Joseph Stalin completely by surprise, especially Stalin. There were some generals who were warning him that this might happen. Uh, that enormous conflict and the terrible conflagration of World War II greatly reinforced this. I'm not defending what uh, Putin and his immediate associates have done, but it's important to understand the other person's point of view, which is something that politicians in a democratic, small-d society uh, of necessity have to do if they're going to survive. I mentioned the uh, Kennedy and Johnson administrations. JFK, in particular, was extremely insightful, I think, concerning um, the human dimensions of governing, including war. He was a combat, decorated combat veteran from World War II, as was his rival, Richard Nixon. They both served with distinction in the South Pacific. Uh, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which I've been working on a revision of an article that I got published a decade ago. Uh, the journal asked me to update it for the upcoming anniversary of that frightening event. Mm. Um, he was, in fact, he was crucial, along with Nikita Khrushchev, ultimately, in forestalling nuclear war. Uh, that dimension is extremely important to keep in mind, which is why I'm, I'm glad you asked about the Russian context and their point of view. Ukraine, historically, was part of Imperial Russia. Uh, they had a brief period of independence during the turmoil and chaos of the Communist Revolution, 1917-18, and the Civil War that continued. There was a strong independence movement in Ukraine uh, during World, again during World War II. In the midst of that terrible total war, um, a Ukraine independence movement developed, and a very ferocious and effective. Uh, warrior force, if I could put it that way, took on both the Red Army and the Wehrmacht on two fronts during that war. Wow. It's a country that has a very strong military tradition, to put it politely, and uh, uh, it's very impressive they're doing so well in this conflict, uh, but it's not entirely surprising. Mm -hmm. I hope that's clarifying. It is. Uh, I'm not an expert on that part of the world. Could you speak uh, for a moment, and this is something you've touched on before, the fact that uh, apparently one of the concerns, if we want to understand the Russians' perspective on this, is NATO and what perhaps Putin and other Russians perceive as NATO encroachment uh, towards Russia, which one could understand how that might be uh, concerning. Uh, can you kind of explain what what NATO has done, which in a sense could be seen by by the Russians as some kind of threat? Uh, yes, NATO has um, steadily during the Clinton and George W. Bush administration and then into the Obama administration, NATO has expanded eastward, um, including Poland and Bulgaria. So there are now NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, members that are right on uh, Russia's border. And uh, Putin has emphasized this, quote, threat, unquote, as rationalization for the invasion of mm. Ukraine. The go, go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Please. please. George H.W. Bush administration, even, albeit uh, uh, the first Bush was a one-term president, I believe he was an exceptionally 
with his associates. He was an exceptionally effective, indeed great president in handling foreign policy. And they, ha they skillfully maneuvered through this extraordinarily important and extraordinarily dangerous collapse of the um, satellite empire, starting with East Germany in um, 1991-92, uh, starting in 1989 with the complicated d diplomatic, political, strategic uh, challenges occurred throughout that administration. They handled it extraordinarily well. Hmm. Has NATO, in effect, broken any promises in terms of what it has done and, and in a sense, moved closer and closer to Russia? I mean, does that... Does that involve a a breaking of promises made, or, or not? As far as you 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 know, uh, not legal promises, not diplomatic agreements in writing. Uh, and indeed, I, I I have taken a look at the record in preparation for being on your program again. Uh, the Bush people were extremely careful not to be threatening and not to be triumphalist. Uh, President Bush said more than once, "I'm not going to dance on the wall. None of us are going to be." crowing hmm. uh, about the fact that, in effect, the Cold War is over and we and our allies have won. Uh, there was an explicit commitment made, again, not a treaty. There was an explicit commitment made not to um, keep NATO from expanding eastward, but not to place nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe. Hmm. And that commitment has been maintained, important to keep in mind, especially given uh, as difficulties have increased for the Russian military in Ukraine, uh, especially given the way that the Russians are trying to put blame on us for what's happened. Hmm. What is your sense of the uh, effectiveness of the sanctions right now that are in place and uh, kind of the level of severity? I mean, what sort of impact do sanctions like that have on Russia at this point in time? I think difficulty for some individuals, difficulty for the average Russian, from what I understand in terms of some uh, fairly important consumer items that are not so readily available. But uh, I believe only a minority of nations in the United Nations are actually going along with these sanctions. India continues to, Turkey continues, and Israel continues to trade with Russia. And of course, mm. China is a uh, an economy that um, has made tremendous strides in terms of growth. It's not a direct competitor to the U.S. and Japan and other major industrial nations, but they are a very helpful source of um, uh, tangible physical goods of all kinds. And Russia is able to call on residual ideological brotherhood with China Putin calls on Xi personally, President Xi personally, to be helpful, and the Chinese have to be forthcoming. I'm not sure how happy they are, they are about this, but Russia is not being completely sanctioned. Do you foresee more in the way of diplomatic efforts to bring this conflict to a, a, a resolution? Yes. And what would you... Who are going to be the major figures... You know, to bring that about? Well, the UN is becoming more active, including the Secretary General's uh, quite recent trip to Russia. And I believe that international constellation of nations will be increasingly important. Hmm. 
I, I do believe that we should, especially because Putin, for understandable reasons, wants to deal with the U.S. on the basis of equality. The more we can have our European allies, especially in the context of the EU, uh, involving the British, the Germans, and the French, especially working together, the more we can involve them, the better. You wrote in another column about uh, another source of concern, and it's one that apparently, uh, to some extent at least, in, as far as your column is concerned, we've been kind of asleep at the switch a bit, certainly complacent, and that is Russia's interest in the Arctic region. Ah, yes. And, uh, and I, I think you are right in that uh, this is something that seems to receive scant attention, uh, at least in the mainstream media. Uh, explain uh, the evidence we have that Russia is really interested in uh, deepening and expanding its presence in and maybe even control of the Arctic region and, and what the point of that is. Geographically, they are an Arctic nation, quite literally, and historically have always had a strong interest in the far north. During the Cold War, before intercontinental ballistic missiles became um, uh, proliferated on both sides in the 1960s, a um, Russian bomber attack over the pole, over the North Pole, was understandably a strong preoccupation, and they had the same kinds of concerns. Uh, NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command, a very important, rarely discussed agreement between us and the Canadians, uh, came into being in the 50s, is still in being, and reflects that um, fundamental strategic concern. Hmm. Uh, thanks to the melting of the Arctic ice, all kinds of natural resources, as well as sheer hand, have become available in the north. And the Russians, like the Chinese, have been very active, literally staking claims, uh, buying up resources, becoming very, very active in precious metals markets. Two years ago, um, I, I learned this uh, in scrambling around to get information for the column, couple of years, more than a couple of years ago, fairly early in this century, a uh, specially equipped Russian submarine planted the Russian flag on the North Pole on the seabed, hmm. um, a symbolic <laughs> gesture that got a lot of media attention. There's a lot of this going on. The uh, Russian Navy, including surface ships, they tend to favor submarines historically and currently, I believe. Uh, but there's a lot of military activity, including some new military bases in the far north. Hmm. Your column, in effect, uh, calls for the United States, among others, uh, to wake up and to be much more yes. attentive to the Arctic region. Do you, do you feel like, is there any evidence that that is beginning to happen? I don't see anything really dramatic that's explicit, but I have the sense that we're being more than rhetorical. Um, the best example in this area, as in so many, many areas, is provided post-war by President Eisenhower, um, really active, scientific, in-depth exploration of the Arctic began actually in the 1800s, led by the Americans, the British, uh, to a degree the Russians. Germany was a very active Arctic explorer until they got sidetracked by uh, militarism that ultimately ultimately became insane and self-destructive. The um, Americans were crucial in, so there have been a whole series of uh, scientific years 
starting in the 1880s and going into the 20th century. Uh, Eisenhower was extremely active in promoting the International Geophysical Year, 58, 59, I think. Uh, the Van Allen radiation belt hmm. was one discovery from that. Coincidentally, speaking of planting flags on the North Pole, Eisenhower, with, with uh, careful planning as usual, had our first nuclear submarine, appropriately named the Nautilus, go under the ice cap, not down to the ocean floor, but under the ice cap in a very dramatic voyage when there was a lot of ice at the North Pole. We were probably the only nation who could have done that. Mm. And the nuclear dimension was important. Eisenhower was telling uh, the Kremlin, look at what we can do. Look at what we can do to you, if necessary. Uh, working scientific cooperation continued throughout the Cold War at Eisenhower's direct initiative. And I hope we get back to that kind of sustained presidential attention. Mm. Very good. Also a lot of cultural exchange, I should say, given your interests. It's why the Bolshoi Ballet was in New York, and Louis Armstrong, among others, was in Moscow. Right. Ben Clyburn uh, played in the Soviet Union. Exactly. You bet. Great pianist. Yeah, Mm. I knew this would resonate with you, sir. (laughs) It does. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Art Sear who is Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy, now I know what that means, and World Business at Carthage College, and a monthly visitor to the morning show uh, here on WGTD. Professor Sear, I, uh, my eyes lit up when I saw that one of your columns, your, I think maybe your most recent, uh, dealt with the, um, the recent national election in France. Oh, yes. uh, when I was gathered with my family uh, uh, last weekend, uh, my niece uh, is uh, is married to someone from France. And uh, we were just kind of talking about matters of one kind or another, and suddenly uh, my niece's wife runs in the room so excited she had just learned the news that Macron had been reelected, and that was who she was desperately hoping would, would, would be victorious in this recent election. So uh, so anyway, so that was resonating through our, our, our family. But there are a lot of other people watched this election, of course, with tremendous interest, not just, of course, the French who were involved in the election directly. Uh, explain, in a sense, what was on the line or what made this election uh, particularly dramatic and significant. Uh, well, it, it uh, reinforces stability, the status quo in this dangerous time. It reelects the sitting president, which by definition means continuity and stability. His principal opponent was Marine Le Pen, she is the head of a, succeeding her father, uh, the head of a far-right um, coalition, really, in France. And uh, she's someone who's personally close to Putin. It's uh, a movement which, if it came to power, would uh, turn things upside down in terms of alliance relations and relations with the U.S. So it's a vote for stability in a dangerous time. Mm-hmm. It's a good reason why you wanted to start out talking about the Ukraine war. Uh, was it a close election? I don't recall. No. Um, I think uh, the president got about 58% of the vote, and she got 42%. This was a runoff. There are a number of parties involved, as usual in France, mm. in the preliminary election. We've been mentioning uh, great leaders from the past, like Ike. A uh, contemporary of his was Charles de Gaulle, uh, the great leader of the Free French during World War II, a really pivotal figure, very difficult man. Uh, He came back when France was falling apart in 1958 and put in place a constitution that 
features an extremely strong presidency, even stronger than the American president. Hmm. And uh, those institutions have survived. And France, uh, thanks to his efforts, uh, enjoys a, a, a democratic and uh, stable and rule of law hmm. stability that uh, we should all welcome. And what kind of leader has uh, Mr. Macron been? Well, he's been very French in the sense that he's rather <laughs> arrogant and aloof, speaking of de Gaulle. Um, there is a very strong history of anti-Semitism in France historically, mm-hmm. as in other parts of the world, but rather distinctive in France. And uh, President Macron happens to be Jewish, and the fact that that's just a fact of life and not a subject of uh, political discussion shows, symbolizes great progress. Anti-Semitism is something that has faded dramatically since World War II, a very positive development in the world that's never discussed at all, rarely discussed, including in this country. You also wrote in a recent column about uh, the appointment of Carolyn Kennedy, of course, the daughter of the late John F. Kennedy, uh, to be uh, the United States ambassador to Australia. And formerly, she served our country as our ambassador to Japan. And uh, this was an appointment that you uh, applauded, in in part at least because uh, of the very good work that she did as our ambassador to Japan. Tell us more about Carolyn Kennedy and specifically uh, her career in in, uh, the realm of diplomacy, of world diplomacy, and, and what has made her so effective. Well, uh, opinions vary on that subject. I got an email from a professor at an East Coast University, a retired diplomat, who uh, reminded me of the fact that she got in some public trouble in terms of public debate because she tweeted uh, a complaint not about whales but dolphins hunting, a controversial issue in terms of the behavior of, of Japanese, mm. including the government, uh, since World War II especially. Hmm. Anyway, uh, she was, she complained publicly about that. Uh, I suggested to him it may not have been spontaneous on her part. A couple of years before that, President Obama had gotten in some public tr- trouble because he was seen and photographed eating an endangered species of fish at a Japanese restaurant. Oh, so I, re- I reminded this retired ambassador <laughs> that it may not have been entirely her her idea. Hmm. Um, she's very hardworking, very gracious. Uh, President Kennedy was noted for emphasizing the importance of public service, something that became very, very prominent and popular in this country during the Great Depression and World War II. I believe he's the last president who really emphasized that as a major theme in his administration. She certainly honors her father's very positive uh, dimension, very positive emphasis in that regard. But she was overall a successful ambassador. Uh, she's uh, an engaging person, intelligent, and uh, rather skillful, I think, in interpersonal relations. Japan is a very important ally of ours, as is Australia. And I use the column actually mainly to emphasize the importance of the Australia-U.S. relationship, which be- began during World War II, greatly reinforced by the Vietnam War and continues today. Mm-hmm. That maybe uh, anticipates my, my next question. In this column about Carolyn Kennedy, you call Australia a vital U.S. ally. And I suspect that the average American just kind of walking around, if if you 
thrust a microphone in their face and ask them to name uh, our most vital allies, uh, probably the, the name Australia would not occur to the typical American. That's why as, I wrote the column. Right. Yeah. So uh, I- explain why this relationship is so important, or and maybe maybe more specifically, why Australia is so important to the United States? What makes them such an important ally? Well, uh, certainly history, as I just mentioned. Geography, they're basically astride uh, a southwest Pacific set of sea lanes that are becoming more and more prominent all the time. Hmm. Uh, The rise of China, including the maritime military uh, buildup of China, which gets lots of media attention, uh, has led to con- their t- ongoing territorial con- disputes China has with virtually every nation in East and Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, including Japan. Uh, China's been losing in terms of international uh, legal decisions, which I think is all to the good, but it reinforces the the practical need for us to be as close as we can with our Australian allies. They're extreme, like the British, in my view, they're extremely good soldiers. They have a very strong military tradition. They uh, kept several thousand troops in Vietnam during our long conflict there. It became very controversial. That war was very controversial in Australia, as it was in our country. They're extremely good at unconventional warfare, insurgency, the kind of conflict that in, that has characterized most wars since World War II, I think that will continue to be a big challenge for us. us. Our British friends have, unlike other nations, including us, as far as I know, the British are the one great colonial, great power and colonial power that has avoided major quagmires over mm-hmm. time, like Vietnam for us, uh, Indochina for the French before us, Indonesia for the Dutch, uh, Angola for the Portuguese, all kinds of problems during Germany's mercifully brief period as a colonial power. Uh, the British seem to be able to avoid these things, and my instinct is the more you can work with the Brits and the Aussies, the better. Hmm. I wanted to just mention parenthetically uh, that uh, I heard the name Australia when I was listening to a podcast. It's, uh, it's just a one of my favorite podcasts about one of my favorite TV shows, and they go episode by episode uh, each, uh, and and uh, and they always have this little segment where what was happening in the world at the time that this particular episode was being filmed, and so this is back in the the late sixties, and uh, and one of the things that was happening that particular week in nineteen sixty eight or whatever was something involving Australia and space. That hmm. uh, that was that was the first time that Australia either put a man in orbit or s- something or other, but I never I never knew Australia did anything like that. I mean, that's just probably another example of us being so America focused that we just I mean we most of us know all kinds of details about our own efforts in 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 the space race, and we know something about what the Soviet Union was doing, but. I didn't know Australia had any hand whatsoever uh, in exploring space. So I didn't either. Yeah. I always learned something good on your program. <laughs> Never anything well, bad, of course. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's also part of President Kennedy's legacy. He really pressed manned space flight. Eisenhower actually opposed manned space flight. I hmm. Well, in some ways, Ike was almost too practical. Instruments were much more reliable. Manned space flight is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly dangerous. 
Uh, one important point to keep in mind during this very dangerous Ukraine war period uh, is that we collaborate very proactively with our Russian friends and others in the International Space Station. And uh, space activity is now a truly international mm. enterprise involving good old American private enterprise. You were mentioning Elon Musk. Yeah. That's SpaceX. where we're going next. All yes, right. fascinating field. Uh, let me just reintroduce you one more time for anybody just joining us. Uh, my guest today on the Friday morning show here on WGTD is Dr. Art Sear, Clawson Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, uh, a, a columnist whose work appears in newspapers across the country, and he is a monthly visitor to the morning show, and we are always so pleased and honored to have him. So, yes, you wrote very recently about the whole matter of Twitter and about the aforementioned Elon Musk, of course, a spectacularly successful uh, entrepreneur who uh, recently purchased Twitter. Yeah, and, uh, things and happen fast nowadays. They really they? do. And at the time that you wrote about Twitter, I think that was a very likely possibility, but I don't think that transaction had yet been finally uh, consummated. And, of course, it is a move that has generated a tremendous amount of controversy. And, uh, and I, I, I can name a number of my Facebook friends, for instance, of a certain political persuasion who, who are leaving Twitter oh. because of it. Oh, my. Oh, my, my. <laughs> but anyway. How will um, we sleep at yeah, night right. now, Greg? So, um, so first of all, uh, explain your understanding of what drew Elon Musk in the first place with all the other things he has going on, uh, to want to acquire Twitter? Well, uh, I have no special insight. He is a businessman. I assume he sees some opportunity to make money. Uh, he also, like Steve Jobs, another great business leader in the high-tech field, um, great commitment to freedom of speech and the First Amendment, as well as um, our right to privacy. And uh, both of those individuals seem, seem to be committed in practice, certainly uh, Jobs was. I think that's part of the motivation. He's mm -hmm. also a kind of contemporary younger business person who likes uh, lots of media visibility. Uh, earlier generations of business leaders tended to be the other way. Uh, so I guess all those things are in play. Right. But I did mention in the column, speaking of anti-Semitism, uh, former President Trump is, remains banned from Twitter because of his um, inflammatory and, uh, uh, in my view, extremely tasteless use of language. Uh, but the Ayatollah Khomeini, the principal leader of Iran, uh, who constantly calls for the obliteration of Israel and the murder of Jews and compares them to a cancerous growth, He's on Twitter uh, because that's political discourse, according to the rather arrogant young censors who seem to populate executive ranks at Twitter. Whereas President Trump, uh, oh my goodness, that he causes harm. It's kind of political correctness at a, at a ludicrous level. Mm. And I, I find that quite uh, hypocritical and annoying mm. So, from my point of view, but in terms of, I, th I think it's a natural, you know, the, the next mountain to climb in terms of an entrepreneurial type. Entrepreneurs used to operate in one field. Capital was hard, much harder to get, uh, even for very talented businessmen and women. And uh, it was very, it's always hard to start a business and make it work. But 
Today you can operate, you know, creating Ford Motor Company was a full-time job for Henry Ford. Focusing on the oil business was a full-time job for John D. Rockefeller mm. and all the end. But today you can move from one thing to another much more easily if you have the skill and the, the ability to get the capital. Right. and there that, are, That's an important point, I think. Sure. There are, there are tools that kind of allow us to function in different arenas and connect yeah. different arenas together. And pervasive media, which is a mixed blessing for business people. <laughs> that's you, for sure. They don't have the right to privacy that earlier operators did. Right. So you bring up actually a couple of different issues in this column that are, I suppose, related, but they're certainly not the same thing. One of them is this whole matter of censorship versus freedom of speech, uh, being free to express whatever it is that you happen to believe about just about anything, uh, and then our right to privacy. And and you see, in a sense, both of those under attack. Do you see those two rights somehow fundamentally connected, the right of free speech and the right of privacy? Uh, yes, I think both are necessary if you're going to be a free citizen, which is why I started out the column and ended the column. Uh, with specific references to 1984, George Orwell, mm. the great British authors. Talking about the British a lot this morning, mm-hmm. uh, interesting, but about, about totalitarian dictatorship and how um, invading your space and creating fear in a very real sense was um, how, how the totalitarians of the 20th century operated. Mm. Today, corporate power is... Um, more pervasive and, I believe, more insidious than it's been in the past. I fully support free enterprise in our system. It's the system that works and helps the average person. Orwell, of course, was a very prominent committed socialist from an earlier time. But the ability of corporations as well as the state to get information about you and use that in subtle ways is an extremely important subject. Orwell's not the only one who's addressed it. And it's especially important for us Americans, since we set the standard for the world to do what we can to protect both these freedoms. Mm. Uh, you you mentioned something from the recent hist- fairly recent history of Apple uh, that that is a, a fascinating story, and I'm I'm just reading a book about Apple, and ah. we'll be interviewing the authors in a, in a week or two, and and this is given a prominent place in that book, which is uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the of the book. I think it's called After Steve or After Jobs, but it's basically a a thorough history of how Apple has been led since the death of Steve Jobs. But uh, one of the the, uh, moments drawn up in this book, which is from the time when Steve Jobs was still alive, was uh, a a criminal case in which uh, federal investigators desperately wanted to get into somebody's phone in order yeah. to draw out information uh, this is this was and it was a truly horrific crime it was yeah. a, like a mass shooting of some kind and and the presumption was this phone uh would hold crucial uh evidence that could uh, you know help help uh, help in a sense secure the secure the uh, secure justice uh for this terrible crime committed and uh but apple was quite adamant that 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 was a line that they were not willing to cross. And, uh, and you defend Apple. Uh, and, and others, of course, have too, even though that's, in a sense, uh, can be an unpopular position to take. It, it sort of flies in the face of, 
of 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 all kinds of other kind of emotional reasons uh, to feel otherwise. Um, explain what 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 leads you to stand with the executives of Apple uh, on that particular point. It was a local crime in San Bernardino, California. Hor- horrific, as you indicate. A married couple who happened to be Islamic carried out this mass murder. Uh, I, I believe quite unwisely, President Obama took the opportunity to address the issue from the Oval Office, and then he went out to San Bernardino, California, thereby transforming a local crime. It's about a decade after 9-11, mm-hmm. a local crime into a major international incident. There's no evidence this married couple had ties to terrorist groups. But following President Obama's actions, the Islamic State immediately took credit for this killing in San Bernardino. Uh, I think um, leaders who make, in my view, unwise decisions of that sort is another important point in the column. The FBI was not able to crack the phone. The Federal Bureau of Investigation should be able to handle this kind of task in this day and age. That was another point. Hmm. Apple did uh, in court their right to refuse pressure from the FBI as well as the President of the United States was confirmed by at least one judge. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation was finally able to locate an outside tech person who managed to help them crack the code, which is what our government should be doing, and what we did during World War II. If this was World War III, I'd probably have a different attitude Mm. toward an event like this. But this was an individual crime, which was, thanks to our pervasive media and a certain political leader's decision, transformed into an international incident. Those are the kind of points I was trying to make. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I believe, I don't think it's just advancing age, I believe um, government agencies and lots of other organizations and people have become lazier than they used to be. The FBI of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s was an organization that would not have engaged in that kind of heavy-handed public action and would have had the internal expertise, they demonstrated that, Mm. to handle these kinds of challenges. I'm not defending J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and he was in office far too long, Hmm. but especially given the fact that J. Edgar Hoover is um, a lot of people's favorite villain nowadays, (laughs) the scandals, including security scandals, that have plagued the FBI since Hoover's time should be educational for all of us. There's a kind of discipline in our society that's faded. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's important. For the first 20 or 30 years... I don't in any way defend uh, Hoover's egomania or his um, overreach. However, early on, he had a very tough job. The first federal law enforcement agency that had real police power, and after a while, they they actually had the authority to carry and use weapons. Very controversial back in the 1920s. Uh, He had a dark side, but he emphasized professionalism of the sort that meant they did not have security and spy scandals. Uh, during that tenure and for a while thereafter. But we've kind of gotten away from that. Hmm. So one of the last things you say in your column... You may get an, e- you may yeah. get an email about that. You right. were talking about the... Yeah. Uh, you say, uh, institutions committed to following the law and protecting personal privacy deserve our support. Right. So uh, 
I mean, so what are you talking about there? What what institutions? I mean, are you talking about specific businesses or? Well, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States, highly divided and partisan. They've become more politicized uh, than uh, until the fairly recent past. But on First Amendment questions, it's always nine zero eight one. The institution mm-hmm. is remarkably committed to maintaining our constitutional protections. And in this unhappy time when there's a lot of screaming and raging and anger uh, on the web and on TV and lots of other places, it's important to keep in mind the fact that we are quite unified as Americans on that basic Mm. legal foundation. And we're the only country that has a First Amendment. Mm. Even our British friends, it's a very different environment in terms of the media and public. Interesting. And, of course, another important point in this column that I think that you would have us take away is to be to beware of of double standards when it comes to something like uh, hate speech and trying to yeah. uh, to tamp down uh, the expression of of one's views which might be highly objectionable to somebody else that a uh, good standard the best standard i think remains Oliver Wendell Holmes supreme court justice holmes standard expressed i think early in the 20th century uh, the standard should be we uh, we will censor crying fire in a crowded theater falsely. Please don't forget. Uh, <laughs> he said that that should be where we draw the line in terms of freedom of speech. Interesting. Yeah, doing literal harm. Hmm. Well, on that note, we uh, have to draw this conversation to a close, but we've uh, explored some interesting issues, and it's always great to uh, hear your particular uh perspective and opinion and analysis of, of various issues of one kind or another. And once again, I, uh, I'm really appreciative of you making time in your busy schedule to be a part of the morning show today. It's well, great to have this gracious. conversation. Thank you, my friend. The feeling's mutual. Dr. Art Sear, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, and uh, our guest on the morning show today here on WGTD.